evening and welcome to the Center for American Progress, President Obama's new employment agency. Uh, this is in part an event about a book, but it is also uh, more, I think, an event about the people whose lives and whose stories uh, made this book uh, necessary. Um, advocates here in, in Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway, often talk about giving a voice to the voiceless, you know? And all of us, I think, in this room, I'm sure there are many who travel to places like Sudan and, and know there, there's something wrong with that phrase, the voice to the voiceless. You know, Sudanese, Congolese, Somalis and Ugandans, they are not voiceless. They have very, very strong voices. And we just have to decide uh, collectively to listen. And we have some pretty great listeners uh, tonight here uh, on this panel. Great listeners and great uh, storytellers. Uh, my good, we have, we have actually with us, we're very, we had actually a, a, a fourth person um, who is going to be with us tonight, uh, one of the subjects of the book, but she couldn't come uh, uh, very last minute, so we're really sorry about that. But we do have Franco Majak, who is uh, from southern Sudan, was one of Sudan's, quote, lost boys, the, the, the tens of thousands of, of young men, and there were some uh, lost girls as well who were orphaned and, or displaced uh, during the Sudan North-South war in the long war in, in southern Sudan. And they were uh, refugees in Ethiopia and displaced within Sudan, refugees in Kenya until finally coming, most of them to the United States back at the end of the last decade. Uh, he's now a US citizen and father of three. And he recently returned to Sudan and is built a school, has built a school in his native village with the funds that he raised here in the United States. Second, right here on my right, is Craig Walser, and he's worked, uh, he's the principal brain behind the book, I guess, the guy, he's worked as a, as a legal service advisor to Darfuri and other Sudanese refugees in Cairo. And for this book, this, this volume, by the way, which will be available afterwards and which uh, the guys can sign for you after the event, for Out of Exile, he traveled extensively throughout Egypt, Sudan, Kenya, and even here in the United States, conducting research and, and interviews uh, for the book. He's currently pursuing degrees from Harvard and the Kennedy School of Government in a true act of masochism. What are you thinking? What in the God's name are you thinking? <laughs> so thirdly, over in the far right, my good friend and the fabulous author, Dave Eggers. Uh, no woohoo or, you know, a little love for the guy? Okay, I guess not. Uh, who most of you know wrote uh, books, I think two, at least two of the books with two of the greatest titles ever, ever made, uh, uh, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius and What is the What? Um, he founded uh, McSweeney's, which is the neatest publishing house in all of America. I urge you all to look it up, to Google it if you don't already know McSweeney's and purchase liberally from it. Uh, he co-wrote the movie script Where the Wild Things Are which is forthcoming, or did you, kind of? Yeah. How did I know that? Hmm. <laughs> Come up yeah. Is it any good, by the way? I don't know is if it's any good. good. <laughs> we'll and, see. And he co-founded um, the Valentino Achokdeng Foundation with Valentino Achokdeng, surprisingly, which is improving educational opportunities 
uh, for Sudanese children in Sudan and the United States. Again, the book, Out of Exile, in the back, and these guys will be ready, available to sign afterwards. So we're here in part because Sudan has known only war for the better part of its independence since 1956. Darfur is just the latest manifestation of, of a diseased state, which is at war with much of its periphery, north, south, east, and west of the country. And the north-south war, for those of you that don't know, most of you probably do, but the north-south war that preceded the current genocide in Darfur was seven times as deadly as the war uh, in Darfur has been so far. Now, one of the children of Sudan's North-South War is Franco Majok. And I thought it would be good, Franco, for us to hear your story first, please. Thank you. Um, I would like to thank everybody for coming here um, to listen to us. Uh, one of the things that we were suffering a lot in southern Sudan when the two war occurred was that nobody was listening to us and nobody knew uh, what is going on in southern Sudan. So I'm glad to see now there is awareness and people come to listen and, and know the history, what happened in southern Sudan. Uh, my name is Franco Majok, uh, originally from southern Sudan, and I'm now a United States citizen. I live in Boston area. I married and I have three boys, and I have been there for nine years. Uh, my father came from a very, very poor family in Dinka tribe, and it's a poor in Africa when you don't have something to eat, you don't have clothes. And he has three brothers and two sisters. And in Dinka, when you marry, you marry by, by paying the cow for the dowry. And my father has the youngest one. His father was able to marry to the first and second. And then he was unable to marry for the third one and, and my father. And that forced my father to leave a village and go to the town and work for the British. And then they hired him as a police officer. And then when he went back to the village, he learned the value of education. And he sent back his kid to his school. And one of my oldest brothers went to his school and went to the high school in Rumbek Seniors, and Rumbek High School. When the first war started, my brother was in Rumbek High School. And he joined the moment Anyanya wanted to fight for the government. And the Sudanese government was intense, want to punish our family. So we have to scatter. And I have, it was about six five years old, I have to escape to Congo Republic. And then I came back in 1972 when the peace was signed. And then after 10 years, in 1983, the second war started. I am from the northern part of southern Sudan, northern Barakazal, which is close to the north. And the beginning of the war, we experienced it in the northern Barakazal because we are neighboring two Arab tribes, Masiria and, and Rezekat. And the government armed them at that time and encouraged them to come to the Dinka land to loot and destroy and take the kid uh, for the slavery. And I was affected to that. I was a young person and they came killing people and each family felt that this is too dangerous. We cannot keep our kids here. So everyone was running uh, to his own direction and I managed to escape uh, to get away from Sudan as a young man by myself. Um, and find my way to Khartoum. I didn't run to Ethiopia because it was too hard for me from northern Barakazal to go to Ethiopia. So I had to run to Khartoum. And when I was to Khartoum to them, it was like, it's a safe because I can't do anything to them. 
I stayed there for some years and then the situation was not encouraging for the security. So I have to move to Egypt and then I stayed there for 10 years and come to, to United States in 1998. Um, looking to what happened uh, to us in southern Sudan, we lost 2 million people uh, in 22 years. Nobody was asking about us. Nobody knew what is going on in southern Sudan. Can you imagine today if the population in Chicago is just killed, something just wipe out the entire city at night, and then tomorrow morning people wake up and nobody uh, talk about it. It will be something very unusual in this country, and that is what happened uh, in southern Sudan. Uh, there is a problem, big problem in, in Sudan, why there is this war. As uh, John just mentioned, there would be no war in Darfur if there is no war in southern Sudan. Darfur was caused by what happened in southern Sudan. Sudan has a lot of problems, and there is one big problem that people need to pay attention to it, the problem of identity. That is what is causing all these problems. Uh, the people who are holding the power are Arab and Muslims, and they have very narrow uh, philosophy that all country has to be Arabized and Islamized. And that is what is causing all this problem. And, and that's why there is a neglect to, to hear that in Sudan we have some marginalized areas. Uh, Southern Sudan is one of the areas who has been marginalized since 1956 until uh, 2005 when we signed the peace. But you can see uh, in Southern Sudan we experienced two terrible wars. The first war was for 17 years. The second war is for two decades, and we lost two million people. We signed the peace in 2005, which I think was one of the best investments we got in southern Sudan until today. But it's a piece of land like Darfur. Uh, people have to know that why people are fighting. They are not looking for trouble. These are the people who are asking for equality in their country. They need education. They need uh, health care. And they need to have freedom in their own country. But they are denied but the philosophy of the Arabized and Islamized. Thank you. Franco. Um, next, Dave, you, you have this extraordinary partnership with Valentino. Uh, part of it uh, comes out, at least in, in the stories in, in the book, What is the What? But you and, and Valentino went to uh, southern Sudan in 2003 to Mary Obai, uh, Valentino's home. And that sort of seems to me where the, maybe the genesis of the book this, this out of exile began. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that history? Uh, well, we met in, uh, in early 2003, and, um, and uh, we were just getting started on Valentino's biography. And, uh, and, um, and then Mary Williams, the uh, head of the Lost Boys Foundation, um, which was helping resettle and help uh, with the transition with a lot of the so-called Lost Boys, she arranged this marriage between Valentino and I, because Valentino was looking for a biographer. And so we got to know each other. And then she also arranged this trip where we got to Nairobi. And then we arranged a flight into uh, southern Sudan uh, in, on an aid flight, in, a car, in the cargo hold of an aid flight. And we made it to Valentino's hometown of Mario Bay, where he hadn't been in 17 years since he fled during the war. And he was uh, about seven years old when he left. And so. This plane actually landed on an airstrip that bisects his town. And uh, his mother and father and some of his brothers and sisters were there to meet him. And he hadn't seen them since you know, he was six or seven. He barely recognized anybody. Um, but uh, it was a very difficult trip for Valentino because at that time, 
he had spent three years in refugee camps in, uh, in Ethiopia, 10 years at the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya, and then he was resettled in the U.S. in 2001. And, um, but seeing what had happened to his hometown, and um, because it, it had just barely, there was a ceasefire in place at that time, but the peace wasn't signed for a couple more years, so the town was just barely getting back up off of its knees, and uh, the, the latest uh, militia attack had taken place less than a year before, so um, it was still a very uh, broken place. And so Valentino felt uh, that he, even though he had uh, lived through unimaginable horrors, felt like he had been lucky, that he had uh, had it easier than those who had lived through the war in, in Mario Bay. And um, so he felt the responsibility to do whatever he could uh, 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 for them from the U.S., which is the case with so many of the Sudanese immigrants here in the uh, U.S. It's been incredible just seeing so many projects undergone. And uh, But during that trip, we uh, there was a nonprofit working in the area called Save the Children who was helping to resettle those who had been abducted and enslaved in the North during the war. And uh, uh, <clears throat> one of their... Uh, uh, aid workers uh, introduced Valentino and I to three women who had been returned to Mario Bay. They had each been abducted when they were between six and nine years old. So um, this was, you know, 13 or 14 years before, and, um, and had been taken uh, <clears throat> to the north to, to, to serve as uh, um, uh, goat herders, uh, taking care of. Uh, 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 animals and uh, and also working in the home and then later on um, two of the three had been given as wives or concubines to uh, to wealthy farmers and um, and then save the children and other agencies had uh, had helped re resettle them to where they had been where they had been abducted from Mario Bay but at this point none of the three spoke Denka they didn't remember anything of their hometown they only spoke Arabic and um, and it was an incredibly hard transition. And two of the three women had had to leave their children that they had had with these men um, back uh, in the north. And so we met these three women and spent an afternoon talking to them. And um, it was very difficult for everybody involved and very difficult for Valentino because you know to be faced with this one, these realities. Because some of his schoolmates, when he was six and seven, he had seen them packed off and uh, abducted on the backs of uh, horses and donkeys and in carts and when he had left his hometown. And so to see these women approximately the same age returned, it was uh, incredibly difficult. And so Valentino and I talked about as soon as we could, after we got his story written, we were going to try to give an opportunity for all, especially the women. We wanted these women's voices to be heard. So we planned on doing a book of oral histories. Uh, of uh, women's experiences during the war, in particular those who had been abducted, and um, and it took uh, a while to 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 uh, get Valentino's story written and also uh, uh, to get this book together. And that's Valentino and I were speaking in Boston, and and Craig was at the event, and uh, we talked to him afterward. He said he was going back to uh, Khartoum that summer, and we were looking for help people that could also interview uh, uh, women still in Sudan and, and in the camps. And um, so that's where Craig came in. So Craig took over most of those interviews. And Valentino and I did a few more in 2007. 
in his hometown, but Craig uh, did the brunt of them. So basically anyone in the audience here could come up to you afterwards and end up writing a book with you. Yeah, that's about it. That's how it works, I think. Uh, yeah. That's how it worked? Okay. Um, we, no, we really did. Uh, we gave Craig a flyer. We knew he was going. We didn't expect him to uh, do such a, a, a thorough and, and uh, I, th I think really a phenomenal job. Um, so, uh, but during that time, it was Valentino that really sort of was impressed with Craig and felt like he knew what he was talking about and, and that he was sincere. So, uh, You're still trying to get a beat on him, right? Yeah, I'm not so sure myself <laughs> yet. Uh, it takes me a little longer, uh, but yeah, but we're just warming up to each other after four or five years. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about this is, you know, the, the, the stereotype of refugee stories, you know, is this terrible victims and, and, and uh, you know, helpless and dependent because, you know, somehow the huge aid industry understandably is partly depended upon that image that, you know, if we don't give, uh, if we're not compelled uh, to give, that person's life could be extinguished or that person's life could be materially uh, uh, much less comfortable. And what's extraordinary about this book is that, you know, these suddenly these uh, stereotypes uh, just get uh, unmasked and human beings emerge in, in such extraordinary diversity. And refugees, you know, again, we think of, you know, these tents and camps and thousands of, but they are, refugees come in all kinds of situations and, 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 and are struggling and, 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 and seeking to better their, their lives and themselves and to get back home often uh, in so many different ways. And you're part of the, the fascinating thing about this book is you see this extraordinary panoply of human struggle. Uh, unfold in, 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 this, in, in these pages, story after story. So Craig, can you tell us a little bit about this diversity of experience and, and what you found you know, as the primary researcher, despite your, your uh, colleagues' uh, questions? <laughs> um, you know, what, uh, what, uh, what, what you found in, with all these uh, people that you met along the way? Yeah, um, well, I think one of the reasons that we were able to, to, um, to kind of provide and unmask some of that that is left um, beneath the headlines so often um, is because of the very format of the book it's, itself. Um, the Voice of Witness project that this is one in a series of books on, uh, by doing it in the sense of oral history, giving people the time and space that's really needed to put in their own words um, what their lives were like. And not just at that moment, we had this very hygienic moment that is captured nicely by CNN cameras of a burning village and then people being herded to a camp or to a new settlement where they all are living under plastic tarps. But what we're able to, what, the, what people actually have is a life that existed beforehand and then a moment that that comes to that transition that we focus on very often and then what happens afterward. And I think that one of the things that's so very important when you ask people, tell me your story, in a situation like this, that we have these very strong memes, these iconographic images of African suffering or of conflict, is to not start and say, how were you hurt or what happened to you, but talk to me about what was life like before. Talk to me about where you come from and what your family was like and what your childhood was like and how did you meet your husband and did you think he was handsome? And allow that, allow that sort of discourse to evolve into a full three-dimensional story. Um, and that, 
so in and of itself, oral history, I think, is so valuable, especially when we're talking about worlds that are so far away from the realm of experience that we have here. Um, the, that part of it in and, of, in and of itself can be very, very valuable. And what also, the reason that we were so focused on having this diversity is because as you've mentioned and as Franco mentioned, um, Sudan is very, very complicated. What's going on in Sudan is a very, very complicated issue, Darfur being the latest chapter that um, we often hear about. But there are strong connections of what's gone on in the history going 50 years and beyond in that country. And so one of the things that we, when, uh, when I first met Dave, they were thinking of doing something through, uh, focusing on abduction. And it sort of evolved to, you can't, it, it, it's difficult to look at that sliver of the story alone um, and capture an essence. Um, and the, what we did, what eventually evolved into, looking at all of these parts of Sudan, you have this common thread. The one thing that is in common amongst very diverse communities of um, more so-called African folks in the south or Arabs in the north, Muslims and Christians, what has come in a horrific way to unite this entire country is a living memory of violence and a living memory of displacement. This is the one thing that unfortunately everybody, no matter their ethnic background or religious social background, can share is that they have in their lifetime experienced some sort of conflict really. Um, and so the reason that we chose displacement as this common theme is to bring those things together. And that works in the book. We have um, stories of a woman. I can show you a picture here of a woman named Nadia. This is Nadia, who I met in Cairo, um, who is Darfurian and fled from her home when she was about 13 in uh, an attack on her village. Um, and because she couldn't leave the country alone, she married the one guy who was from her village who was with her trying to flee the country. They got married very quickly so that she could get papers to be allowed to leave the country as a young woman because young unaccompanied women are not allowed to have passports or travel independently. She came to Cairo and I met her in Cairo where she was living. Um, and she was miserable, <laughs> living in an urban environment, unprotected, um, with no services being offered to her or protection being offered to her by the Egyptian government, um, and no protection or substantial aid being offered to her by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. At some point, she tried to, she had a baby when she was there and tried to leave her baby on the steps of the UNHCR in hopes that maybe in that way she would at least be able to get the baby some sort of sympathy or protection. And when I interviewed her in Cairo, she was just making plans to actually return to Sudan and return shortly thereafter because she figured if she's going to die, and she figured death was, was approaching imminently in the unsafe environs of Cairo, um, that she'd rather die in her own country. Um, and you can make it, and at the same time we also have, um, you can see here, this is a wheel from southern Sudan who had left in a very situ similar situation years earlier, had gone through horrific violence on her, in her escape from South Sudan and had gone the same place up to Cairo. Um, and a different generation, but a woman who was essentially unaccompanied, passing through dependence on men, um, coming to Cairo. And these two stories kind of, you, you see a reflection over different times of how these different stories work. Um, and just to give you an, a, one other thing that I think is important on the, on the diversity of these is um, 
we often talk, again, about what life in camps looks like. And we've all seen very often pictures of that. But just to kind of illustrate once more with a, with a specific story of how these things actually look, I'm just going to show a short minute and a half video here um, to give you a sense of when I say that these people went fled to Cairo, what that actually looks like in real time. So if you'll humor me on that for a second. أنا طلعت من السودان هناك عندنا مشاكل ومهاجرة لقد لقد مشاكل أكعب من مشاكل كانت بتواجهها هناك هناك عايشين في توتر في حرب نفسية يعني لكل الطرق بقت مقفلة معيشة صعبة تجاهل من المفوضية ضغط من المصريين من الأمن المصري من الشعب المصري يعني لا يقايد هم غير غيمة كلام محتبر ذاته إنسانه يعني عايش أو شيء الحتة دي ما هم فرط لاجي وقت هنا كلها مجار ما وبلطجية ومروجين متعين حشيش وبتعين مخدرات لكن هم بقوا مضطرين أنا من الشباب بتاعنا عاوت له كويس وأساسا سموا عاوت له اسم ساكت يعني هم جميع الفنان توباك وتوباك كان يعني البرنامج بتاعه اسمه عاوت له يعني أساسا مش سموا عاوت له عشان هم خارج الغانوني هذا لا شباب حبوا بعض وشايفين الحراف في مصر كويس حاولوا يقفوا مع بعض يصادوا بعض عندنا حد مسافر حد عيان حد يعملوا له مناسبة العيان يدعموا كان يلقط من بعد قرشنا الوضع صعب هنا في مصر هنا انت مشيت براق يا مثلا بقيت مجرم يا بقيت بتاع مخدرة ربيت السودانيين مسجلين في الحياة دي هنا لأنه مضغوطين نفسيا واجتماعيا عمل ما في تحت اشتوشن ولازم تضل تمشي للطريق السوق هنمشي لعندنا لاجي سوداني كان عامل خناعة مع مصرين وولعوا النار في الشيء في الأوضة اللي هو ساكن فيها وهسه قاعد مع قريبته هنا ده في العماره دي هنطلع عليه ونشوفه طبعا ده اخونا قدري كان من ضمن اللاجئين المتصمين في مصطفى محمود شارح كله بالليل كله يعني الناس مسطوله كلهم بيشربوا حشيش اي حد سودان بيجي ماشي بالليل بيحتوى عليهم هو عمل معاهم خناقه مع المصريين وخلوه لما دخل الشقه بتاعته قال له عفوا النار بعد ما سقوا سقوا الشقه بالبنزين اهي كمان ده كله جسم كده اتحرك بس اللي زي ما ده انت عايش براك ام ذا ريزن اي شو ذس كليب اند اي ثينك ات از يوزفول فور two reasons. First of all, to give you a sense of what this actually means to be displaced or to flee into a place like Cairo. This is what it looks like on the ground. Um, and there are just a slew in this short testimony that this guy is giving, just a slew of small issues that you can bring up that are really important central issues to the, to the, to the phenomenon that maybe we need to be thinking about a little bit more. I mean, obviously, someone who's living underground in Cairo um, the Egyptians are not giving protection to them in any meaningful way, and that means lack of police protection, lack of access to education or health care. Um, and you heard him have not such kind words for the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, which is massively under-resourced in a place like that. And so it ends up being a very antagonistic relationship between the Sudanese community that's there. And there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Sudanese who are in Cairo. And they they're without without given the without being offered the resources that they need they're left in a very antagonistic situation with both the UNHCR and with the Egyptian community at large many of whom are very very poor themselves and saying well why should we be helping out 
these people who are coming to us when we in, our, in and of ourselves are suffering from 40% unemployment and you know, huge amounts of poverty. Um, and you see also one of the things I think that's interesting, you, you notice he's talking about the outlaws, um, the outlaws gang. This is a phenomenon that's just, I think, so fascinating of what's going on in, in Cairo. There are many, many unaccompanied minors, young men like Franco who went to Cairo on their own. Um, and they have no police protection, and they have no protection in their communities. And initially, they sort of self-appointed them as security force for their own Sudanese communities. Um, Hip-hop culture has a very big influence there. American culture in general, MTV is playing on all the satellite dishes and all the coffee shops and cafes. Um, and so they adopted hip-hop clothing and music and many of this stuff. And unfortunately, what's happened over the few years is that they've also adopted um, tendencies towards gang violence. The initial security force of men split off, siphoned off into different groups named after the outlaws or the BIG gang or the Lost Boys um, who were protecting various elements of turf. And now a huge problem amongst the Sudanese community there is infighting amongst these, um, amongst these different groups. And one of the guys that I interviewed in the book actually was a young man from South Sudan who was involved in one of these gangs and was killed by a machete to the head in one of these gang fights shortly after I interviewed him. Uh, but this is brutal, brutal violence that's taking place there. Um, and these are, and what it speaks to, I think, just to sum up, is, um, is this focus. If you're going to take people as a, pe as a person, thinking about how can we help, there are many places to help that are beyond that moment of the burning village or that moment of masses of people in plastic sheets. What ha what's happened amongst the displaced people in Sudanese culture in general is there's been a real tearing of the social fabric. You know, these, these people who are in places that are so far away from their villages or from their towns back in Sudan are finding themselves in exceptionally different circumstances and adapting in often ingenious but often terrifying ways. And that's somewhere really to be thinking about this and finding the positives in it. At the same time, members of these gangs are Sudanese, southern Sudanese and Darfurians and northerners who never would have come in contact with each other that are creating new generations of integrated Sudanese. But those are things that need to be thought about that are far beyond the, uh, the normal headlines and look at what happened, where people have come from before and where they've gone afterwards. Excellent, thanks. Um, the, um, you know, we often think uh, as we see uh, the situation deteriorate slowly and steadily in Darfur, it's hard to imagine uh, a uh, solution there. <clears throat> people feel a lot of hopelessness now about Darfur. And um, I think that one of the principal uh, obstacles we have uh, as, uh, as those of us in this room who, who would advocate for a better future, for peace, for security for the people of Sudan, um, is this feeling of hopelessness um, that pervades uh, the, 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 the average person's perception of what goes on in these places. In, war zones in Africa. And so we wanted then next to take you all briefly to uh, one of those places and show you that, in fact, uh, uh, the capacity for Africa 
and in this case Sudan, uh, the capacity for transformation is potentially limitless. Seven years ago, the Darfur of the day globally was southern Sudan. Uh, everyone, it was a place that most uh, analysts thought could never be resolved. The war had gone on, as Franco said, two million people dead, uh, millions, millions more displaced. And uh, yet, today, uh, three years after a peace deal was signed, four years now after a peace deal was signed, largely by, driven by the United States working closely with African nations and European states, the people of southern Sudan are returning home and investment is occurring and peace is returned in part tenuously to the south. So each of us has traveled there rather extensively in, those, in that period of time and I wanted to give little snippets here of experiences. Franco, tell us a little bit about your experience going home after all the years growing up in the midst of a war and then being able to go home and seeing how things had changed. Well, thank you. Um, I went back seeing the peace was signed, I think now five times. The last time I was there was in November. Uh, when I went back in 2005 for the first time, uh, what I saw in southern Sudan after the peace was signed and what I saw in 2008 is a huge difference uh, after the peace was signed. Um, going back with my experience, I was just going to visit and see my family um, and look to southern Sudan how the destruction that happened in, in southern Sudan, it, it was amazing to see that. Uh, when I went back to my village for the first time, uh, one of the things I noticed is that the people I left when I was young, no one of them was alive. Uh, it was their kids and the kid that born after I left, uh, that young generation. Uh, people have to know that because when I mentioned that, uh, the philosophy of uh, the Arabization and Islamization uh, applied by the Sudanese government, they lock out other uh, Sudanese who are not Arab and Muslim. So southern Sudan there was no development. Uh, I myself, looking back when the war started, I thought that there is no going to be peace between us and the North because it was a little bit better complicated. They said Sudan is Arab country, should be ruled by Islamic law. We in, in Southern Sudan, some of us are Christian and some of them believe in African tra traditional. So when I went back, it was just a piece of land, nothing was there in 2005. Uh, people start going back and building their houses with the mud and other things. Myself, what I did when I saw that, back to my experience when I was young, when the war started, what I saw was that most of the people who died were people who have no education. They were vulnerable in the middle. They were easy to be killed. I saw that a lot of people in my neighborhood who died. I saw that also, that people with education at that time, it's easy for them to get out. Either they join any sides and they defend themselves. I saw that when I was in southern Sudan, that nothing was going on and it was intentionally done by the north. If you go to Khartoum, you will be surprised. School are going on, there is electrics, there are buses. Uh, my, in my, my life, myself, for me to taste the Bipsi, I have to go to Khartoum from southern Sudan to get it. There were no Bipsi in southern Sudan. So when the peace was signed, it turned around a lot of things in, in southern Sudan. Uh, people don't believe that, if you can tell. 
I know when I was young in Juba, there was one hotel called Juba Hotel when I left Juba. In 2005, the hotel just started coming back. When I went back in 2008, in November, there is about 80 to 90 hotels in Juba. So you can look in three years that the development just came up. In a old town where I am from, uh, we used to cross the Swam area for two days. When I went in November, there were three bridges, and you can just go by 15 minutes to get where you want to go. In a old town, in my life, no cars. People just walk on foot to go to the village and come. When I went in November 2008, there are buses. You can just pay two Sudanese pounds and you can get uh, to your village. Uh, because of the peace was signed, and my experience as a young person, especially when the war started, when I saw a lot of innocent people have been killed, if it's people with no education. And when I saw and I know that there was intention from the Khartoum government to keep the southerners down with no development, when I went back in 2005 and I came back, I just came to Boston, where I live, and I talk to people. I have connection uh, with American family I work with as a social work foster parent. And I asked them to help me to form the foundation, and I formed the foundation. We went back in 2007, and we built a school uh, in my village. And I know that that is going to help the entire generation. For the first time, the kid who go into the school I built is the first time, and I know that a lot of people are doing that. So Southern Sudan is not the southern Sudan of 2000, even when we start the war, there was nothing there. Today people are talking. I, I know that in Wow now you can see electric. In Juba you can see electric. In Ye you can, you can see that. You can see people uh, coming from other countries in the Western world to visit southern Sudan. Before that thing like that uh, were not here. Anytime you go to southern Sudan, if you go today and you come back after five days, after the peace was signed, you will see change. Everything is changing in, in southern Sudan. Uh, and that is because the peace was signed. Nobody was worried to, to, about his life. I know the comprehensive peace agreement between us and the north, there are a lot of challenges. It's not easy. Uh, they don't like it. And, and why it is happened, I believe we should go back to that one. Uh, people can look to Darfur and see it has a very complicated war. It's not comparing with southern Sudan, as I said, because in Darfur, People are Sunni Muslims, and people in the north are Sunni Muslims. They have something that they can come. The difference between them is that people in Darfur are black Africans, and people who are in the government are Arab. In southern Sudan, we are totally different. And people were thinking, peace is not going to happen, but it happened. Because something happened. U.S. pushed the government to sign the peace and change the southern Sudan. If the southern Sudan is going on the way it is, if someone go in 10 years, it will be a different uh, country. I know David and Valentino Ishak, they team up to build the school. And there are a lot, a lot of many things going on. Uh, it's not only us. There are a lot of organizations. Southern Sudan now is peaceful uh, because of the peace. Everybody is concentrated to develop the Southern Sudan. If you go, you can walk day and night uh, in Southern Sudan. But there are a lot, a lot of problems with the comprehensive between us and the North. Because the Sudanese government is not happy. It's not something they wanted. But they accept it because somebody pushed them. There is a pressure. That's why they signed it. Um, Dave, you and Val saw a lot too. Maybe uh, building on some of Franco's comments, you want to tell yeah, us a little Franco bit. Summed it up really well. When we when we saw each other here, we just we realized that the last time we saw each other was here, in this room where we had a kind of a convention for um, groups that were building schools and clinics in Sudan. And it was all 
all guys who've been resettled around the same time, wouldn't you say, just about everybody? And, um, and, and different projects in, in, in their hometowns. And so, um, uh, and then when we were back this fall, uh, we noticed uh, incredible changes, including, I mean, a wheel is a really incredibly changing place and it's turned into sort of a big city and, and uh, there's a gigantic road leading from a wheel to Khartoum now where the goods can go, you know, it used to take many days and now it would take, I don't know, a day. Wasn't that about a days. full two days now? Um, we saw it first a year before when it was just dirt and now it's like it's fully developed. So um, it's incredible to see those changes and, you know, Valentino's hometown, Mario Bay, is more remote, and it's cut off by uh, on two sides by rivers that uh, are just uh, uh, that prevented Valentino's from uh, uh, <coughs> slowed down his construction. He's building an 11-building educational complex in his hometown, and um, that'll include a teacher training college and a community center and uh, adult education. But it'll be a secondary school because there's a lot of primary schools. That's been the main focus is building primary schools, and they're going up everywhere, and they're swollen with uh, students, and uh, and they need more and more. And the one main issue right now is finding qualified secondary school teachers, and because uh, so many of the best teachers have left, you know, for better wages in Kenya, Uganda, the U.S., uh, you name it. And so uh, that's where uh, <coughs> so Valentino decided that a teacher training part had to be part of this. Uh, complex. So teaching the, training the teachers while they're uh, turning around and, and teaching uh, uh, the students, it's an incredible undertaking. And so Valentino's had to, he's been he's back in uh, Nairobi most of the time now and then flying in and in and out of his hometown. And he's had to turn into an educational, you know, an administrator, a contractor, a, you know, transportation expert, a, 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 He's had to do uh, so much, but the entire community is completely behind his project, like everybody. The land was given for free, I mean, and, and it's incredible, uh, you know, how united everybody is in, in, their, in, the, in the goals. And uh, we were recently at an event together, and somebody asked if the government had been an impediment at all, the government of southern Sudan, and it's been in, everyone from the, la from the highest... Uh, 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 level to the uh, regional commissioners and uh, and the local elders have been incredibly supportive. So there hasn't been one blip. Everyone's like, do it, do it, do it. And um, so it's uh, it's easy to be optimistic, even though things are incredibly difficult and the challenges are everywhere. And uh, but at the same time, the will is there. Phenomenal. This uh, this this. Uh existence of uh, or the surge of diaspora investment that you see um, that you guys are talking about in, in uh, southern Sudan. You see it in Liberia and Sierra Leone and Mozambique after the war, Angola, all these countries where as soon as there's a, just a, an acre of peace you know, uh, uh, and stability, people just dive back in and see how can they contribute to the reconstruction, rebuilding, redevelopment uh, uh, of their home. And you, you saw a lot of that you know, in your interviews, uh, this diaspora phenomenon. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah. I, I think certainly there is a huge movement towards repatriation in the South. Um, the closest that I came to, um, to that was actually when I was in Kakuma refugee camp, um, which is just on the Kenya-Sudanese border down in South Sudan, northwest Kenya, um, which had 
hundreds of thousands, we're not sure how many, but well over 100,000 Southern Sudanese refugees, many of whom, uh, a couple of girls that I interviewed in the book had been born in the camp, uh, had moved to the camp when they, just after they were born, so it was all the life that they had ever known. Um, and there were trucks and buses every day leaving the camp of people that were going back to, I mean, the taxi cab drivers were, um, well, they were reeling it in, but they knew that it wasn't gonna last forever, so, but they were just zipping back and forth between the camp in Kakuma and South Sudan. Um, at the same time, and uh, Panther, one of the guys who's another narrator for the book who's actually back in South Sudan now um, doing development work says, a lot of people are going back and building houses, um, but they're building a lot more out of mud than they are out of brick, is the way that he puts it. Is everybody is really excited about what's going, but they're holding their breath. Everybody's talking about there's, you know, there's elections and referenda that are coming up that are going to determine the power sharing structure in the country and who's going to be in charge. And nobody has much faith in what's going to happen there. Or people really, or certainly the Sudanese themselves, are really holding their breath, not trusting the other side much of an inch on that. So I think that's one thing that, um, that really needs to be a red flag, and certainly on the mind of the folks that I've spoken to, is a huge huge thing to look forward to, that they are not out of the woodwork net yet, and they know that what they're building is, um, can go back up in flames at a moment's notice. It really is a, a hold your breath moment in, in Sudan. Literally this coming week or next, we're going to get the ICC's uh, uh, arrest warrant issued for the, its first uh, arrest warrant for a sitting head of state. Um, you have the c potential of uh, a rapid uh, deterioration of the implementation of that North-South peace deal. We have the trend line in Darfur that's very negative. Um, so there, is, there are tremendous challenges, and this will be our last little segment of our discussion. We'll turn it over to questions and comments in a minute, so be, be ready. But to, to close this part of it, I wanted to ask each of you, um, with those extraordinary challenges that Sudan is facing now, um, what do you think ought to be prioritized? Uh, what should we be, as, as people who care about Sudan, what should we be focused on? What should we be telling our government to do? What should our government be doing? Anything you want to talk about in terms of what we need to do now about the extraordinary uh, set of challenges that, that the, the country of Sudan is facing uh, today? Franco, tell us. I would talk about this, the conference peace agreement between us and the Sudanese government uh, that need to be support because uh, when the peace was signed between the South and, and the North, uh, the focus was on Sudan, um, that after the peace was signed, the international community would push better hard so that the Sudanese government uh, should meet what they agree upon uh, during the peace. We have been cheated before in 2000 and after the 17 years in 2000 and, and I mean in 1972 when we signed the peace with them. Uh, after 10 years they cancelled it and we were told it is not a holy Quran or a Bible and everything went back uh, to normal. And that's why the war is started again after 10 years. Looking to the peace agreement between us and the Sudanese government, there are certain things that they refuse to work with. Uh, one of it, we are 
still been cheating about the oil. The oil is in the south, and they are taking it. We are dividing it 50-50. But what happened now, because the, they signed the contract with Chinese when we were in the war, so the southern Sudanese are not represented in the oil. And what happened is that they take the oil, sell it out, and then they give us money and say, this is your 50%, and we don't know. It could be 10 or 20%. Nobody's sure about that. Most of the southern Sudanese are not happy about that. Uh, they know that they have been cheating. And also, we have a problem of the borders uh, between north and the south. It is very clear. Everybody knows that. Where is the south and where is the north? Uh, they refuse to form the committee so that we can walk uh, through that to finish it. The third thing I saw they were doing it in the borders was the Arab tribe, where um, the Masiri and Rizikat were not disarmed. Even after the peace was signed, they are still holding their gun. Uh, last year, they did one thing when they asked the government of southern Sudan that we want to come with our cow uh, looking for the grass and water in southern Sudan. And when they were asked to put down their gun and come without the gun, they refused that and they start uh, fighting with the SPLA forces. So that is another problem is still there. Uh, another thing they are holding is uh, the uh, population. The census were done uh, almost seven to eight months now. And they are holding it. They don't want to release it. And we are talking, uh, this year we should go for election in June. I don't know how can they go for election. And nobody knows the census. And they are holding it. The big things about the peace between southern Sudan and, 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 and the north, one big thing that people should focus on it. And if the war is going to start, it is because of that, is the referendum in 2011. Nobody in the south is ready to beg off and accept that it should be postponed for one day. Because we lost 2 million people. It's something very, very expensive to us in the South. We want it to happen on time in 2011. And if there is any change in the Khartoum government to play to play like what they did in, in 2000, and, I mean in 1972, nobody in the Southern Sudan is going to accept that. Most of you should know that when the peace was signed, uh, our leaders, who's late John Garangu, died after the peace was signed. He put the condition that there should be two separate armies. In Sudan now and South, we have two separate armies. They have the Northern Army, we have the SPLA Army in the South. Uh, they are arming themselves. The Chinese are giving them a lot of weapons, uh, preparing for what we don't know. But you have to know that if the referendum is allowed to happen in 2011, I don't see there is going to be a war. But if there is anything to stop that, that is what is going to bring a lot of, of problem. Everything can be postponed, like the election this year. If there is no chance to be done, people in the southern Sudan, I believe, they can accept to be postponed until the early next year. But nobody is going to accept to delay the referendum for one minute in southern Sudan. This is something we fight for. And people are looking that uh, there should be Unity should be attractive. The northern government should do something to persuade the southerners so that they can accept the unity. I'm not seeing that. The thing I, I will just tell you now, the population, the oil, the disarmament of the Arab tribe, those things, if you go and talk to anyone in the southern Sudan, nobody is happy about that. What they are doing in Khartoum is really what is encouraging the southern Sudan to ask for uh, to be separated from the north. Let alone the big things, the identity of the country. The Arabs are about 15 to 20% in, in Sudan. They just got inherited the power from the British.
and that's why they control everything. And they came up with those ideas that if you are not Arab and you are not Muslim, you cannot be developed and you can be a second citizen in your own country. Looking to all these things, the only way that the peace between South and the North is going to be safe to go to what is is, is to allow the Southern Sudanese to exercise their right for referendum. Thank you. It's very clear. Thank you, um, Franco. I, um, and Dave, what, what, what do you think is, is important? Does everyone know about this referendum? Is that clear to everybody? In 2011, part of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, there was a provision that the South could vote by popular referendum to secede and become uh, a new nation. I, I don't know if everyone settled down on a name. It used to be New Sudan, but um, yeah. And there's overwhelming support. Is about 80%? The latest poll says that in the South, the, that 80% uh, of the citizens of the South would vote to secede. So, um, and uh, I, do, I agree with Franco, if that referendum doesn't happen in 2011, that's going to be the trigger, I, I, it seems like. But uh, I, I agree with, I mean, Franco, uh, all my bullet points. Yeah, I was just like, oh, is that the border, the oil profit sharing? Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I'll echo a paper that John and uh, co-wrote here at Enough, which is, uh, you know, uh, Enough's been writing a series of letters to President Obama and his administration about sort of how policy should be enacted from here on out. And one of them is one of the things, I think the overarching thing that's just as Franco was saying was trying to come up with an all Sudan solution and sort of like a proactive policy as opposed to putting out these little fires or sort of lip service to putting out of fires. I mean, uh, uh, and coming out with a, a, a solution that would work for Darfur and Southern Sudan. And, and, uh, and I don't know exactly, I want you to talk about what the ICC's uh, arrest warrant, uh, how that affects um, the implementation of the CPA and, uh, and, and how real you think Bashir's threats are about what that will do. But, um, but I, it does seem that the solution in terms of power sharing and, and uh, sharing of resources and, uh, and building of uh, all of these you know, very uh, legitimate concerns and uh, the same things that John Garang and the South fought for, they're fighting for in the West, is a, a share of infrastructure, schools, health care, all of these things that any citizen has a right to. So it seems like an all-Sudan solution with uh, some help from uh, the international community and the U.S. in particular would be able to push for that. This is a prime time to do it and it's not like an hour to waste, right? Right. Perfect. Great. I'm not, I'm, I'm terrified to actually prescribe much of anything <laughs> in these situations. I mean, it seems like the more that I learn, the more terrified I get with yeah. that. But I think just a couple things like this referendum to really flag with it are, um, and speaking to my experience and the folks that I'm still in touch with uh, in Sudan, um, there are a lot, even if South Sudan, say, if everything goes smoothly and and whether they vote by by their own volition to gain independence, there are a lot of Sudanese who are forgotten amongst that group and who are undocumented in any sense of the word um, or in outright hostile territory. One of the things to, that um, we spoke to a lot of people and I spent a lot of time in the internally displaced person camps around Khartoum. Um, Sudan has the highest number of internally displaced people, refugees, essentially, who haven't crossed borders, crossed international borders, but are still within the country itself. Um, millions and millions of people from the south and from Darfur, um, and many of them came to the only major city in the country, uh, 
for forever the capital city of Khartoum. And so you have Khartoum, which is a city of a little, little over a million people, and then you have this ring around it in the Sahara Desert of, we don't know how many, but two, three million people that are living in, you know, under garbage bags, like living with garbage bag roofs or little rakubas, as they call them, huts made out of mud and sticks. And to be honest, they say, God, I wish I was in Darfur right now because at least all the aid workers are out there, you know, working and supplying thousand calorie diets and, you know, there's some water and there's some level of protection. But these people in Khartoum itself have not, have been forgotten about because that's not where the, you know, that's not where the focus is right now. But these people are extremely vulnerable. And imagine they're going to be right at the, and, you know, they're right now subject to the whims of Sudanese security and, you know, having their homes bulldozed to make room for more developments. Um, but imagine how vulnerable those folks are going to be if unrest occurs in the south or every time unrest occur occurs in Darfur. Those are folks to think about. Folks that are in Cairo or Nairobi who aren't, you know, who were denied refugee protection or found to have a lack of credibility by the UNHCR to be able to support status as refugees who aren't um, eligible for repatriation funding assistance and how do they get back or what are they going to be doing in Cairo if you know as fewer and fewer SPLA southern Sudanese supports are there in Cairo and more of it's focusing back on the south who's going to be helping to keep them okay and these are I think these are really really important issues to to remember that for every refugee that's getting assistance and displaced person who's getting assistance um, and bringing them back, and they're going to be so important for rebuilding that country. The experiences that they've had, the access to other cultures, to different organizations of society, to education in some cases, that's going to be so crucial to rebuilding the country. We can't forget about the ones who aren't on the paperwork who, or who don't make the first cut of resettlement. Like Those folks really need to, and, and they're scared right now. They're, they're definitely scared. I guess the only um, thing I would add to these excellent uh, notes and suggestions would be that, um, you know, in 2001, uh, fairly early in, in our previous president's tenure, he made a decision that the United States would do everything it can, everything it could to, uh, to end the war in southern Sudan. It was driven largely by uh, political calculation. Conservative Christian groups in the United States were hammering the administration to do more about southern Sudan demonstrating that advocacy does, in fact, matter. And he decided, named a high-level special envoy, no different than Richard Holbrook or George Mitchell, sent out Senator Jack Danforth. And the United States sent a team with Danforth, and they worked assiduously for three years and helped and worked with other nations and helped uh, bring about the peace deal that the fruits of which uh, our panelists have, have talked uh, well about today. I think the same decision is, point is facing President Obama in that we as a nation and an international community have managed the symptoms of the war in Darfur now, the genocide in Darfur for six years, thrown terminology around uh, uh, without backing it up with commensurate serious action. and. Um, and we have a, we have a, we, he has a decision to make. And if he makes it, if he says, you know what, I'm going to put uh, the full uh, uh, power of the United States government working in tandem with our friends and allies around the world uh, in, in support of a policy to end 
the cycle of conflict in Sudan, not just the war in Darfur, but also the, uh, the implementation of the peace in the north, between north and south, and the uh, simmering conflict in eastern Sudan and the far north, that this is going to be a, uh, you know, an important uh, uh, objective of my administration, uh, and then puts the resources uh, behind it, potentially the most cost-effective thing you can do in the next eight years. Oops, eight? Mm. Uh, and, um, and I think that uh, you know you put the kind of you look at the little bits of money that were put into the diplomatic effort that ended that war between the north and the south compared to the billions of dollars that were spent the previous 20 years on humanitarian assistance and other uh, it, it's a shocking uh, uh, argument for preventive uh, investment and uh, we at uh, the enough project with the Center for American Progress and the Genocide Intervention Network and the Saved Our Four Coalition, a bunch of the groups here in Washington are working to encourage this administration to uh, engage in what we're calling very uncreatively a peace surge. You know, you got the military surge in Iraq, the development surge in Afghanistan, and we're pushing very hard for a peace surge. What does that mean? A few diplomats, a senior envoy, a decision by the U.S. government working closely with other countries, just like what happened in southern Sudan. I think we can do the same in Darfur. We can bring uh, the, uh, the Southern Sudan Agreement home to the referendum in 2011 and, 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 and help, help that make, uh, become a reality and help, bring, help Sudan become a, a, a peaceful nation. I think we have that capacity and I think that if we make the decision, a very serious decision, uh, not one to be made lightly and not one to be rhetorically referenced and then not invested in, I think we can actually make a massive difference in the course of history in Northeast Africa. So with that, Floor is open. Anybody can ask questions, comments, and, and ideas. Uh, we're wide open. You got the, the mic, so just actually, you wanna, do you want to choose, or do I do I have to choose? You choose. All right, good. <laughs> Bad chooser. Uh, hi, good evening. My name is Lila Andrews Bashan, and I work on conflict prevention in Africa for the Office of the Coordinator for Reconstruction and Stabilization at the State Department. And so this is something that we think about a lot. I'm not a Sudan expert at all, but I do know that for the last as long as I know, we've given more foreign assistance to Sudan than to any other country in Africa. Oh, I want to interrupt by saying, Mr. Eggers, you totally rock, and I'm really excited to be here with you. Um, but so when thinking about Darfur, one, in your research, did you come across the regional aspect at all? I mean, the, the um, militias being harbored in Abishai and by the Chadian government and the interplay between Chad and Sudan, I feel like that's... Um, not focused on enough. And also, when it comes to, yes, we do need more funding, we need more diplomatic focus, and at the same time, when you're working with a government that's not necessarily conducive to creating the peace or furthering the stability, what, what can you really do? And you know, you can have as many high-level diplomats as you want, but if there isn't the political will from the US, from the international donor community, and from the government of the country in question, this being Sudan, then I don't really see um, what progress you can make. And also, what is the China effect, from your opinion? Thank you. Great name, lots of questions. <laughs> Franco, do you have anything you want to uh, respond? Um, I, uh, I think very, very briefly, um, you know, yes, indeed, the, 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 there are many dimensions to the war in Sudan. There's local dimensions, uh, uh, national dimensions, where rebel groups are fighting uh, the government, and then there's regional dimensions, and, and a number of the countries 
around the periphery of Sudan have at times been engaged, uh, uh, not surprisingly, in, uh, in supporting rebel groups within, within Sudan. And Chad is the latest manifestation. Uh, I was just uh, noting that tonight is a full moon uh, in, in, uh, in Chad. What does that mean? Uh, it means that the, uh, the potential exists uh, for the preparations are, are ongoing now for a, a, a rebel uh, assault on uh, the capital of, of Chad. So the Sudanese rebels are arm Sudanese government is arming the Chadian rebels, and the Chadian government is arming the the, um, Sudan the Darfurian rebels. And this isn't the, the the main driver. This isn't the the the, the root cause of conflict in, in Darfur and broader Sudan, but it's a proximate a driver, proximate driver. And I think that, that unless we deal with conflict on a number of different levels, that local level, which addresses some of the resource issues, which address some of the, the intercommunal issues uh, and other, other uh, unsatisfied demands of people at the local level, unless we deal with the national issues, which uh, uh, involve fairly serious and significant demands by rebel groups and civil society groups for more equitable decision-making and, and well-sharing and the kind of things, the very practical things that Dave was talking about earlier, like a, you know, just a basic chance at, at, a, at a decent livelihood uh, uh, and opportunities, basically. Uh, unless those are dealt with, won't be any peace. And then, of course, the region. As long as Gaddafi's out there and Debbie and Isaias and Mellis and other countries that profit or somehow are drawn to uh, uh, the, the various actors and players and the competitions and rivalries that exist regionally, uh, driven somewhat economically, somewhat politically, and somewhat by big power, big leader egos. Uh, the, unless those are addressed and dealt with, that is going, has to be part of the solution as well. All of it completely and totally uh, doable. And I think that we, we learned that lesson in 2005. And I think if we can leave people with anything, it's that the, you know, that, that, uh, the peace is possible in Sudan. And it's happened already in the South. It's still tenuous because of Darfur and because of the government uh, that remains in, in Khartoum. But uh, you know, I cannot tell you 10 years ago how few people in the world thought there was going to be a peace deal in southern Sudan. And I just say one more thing on, on the second point there is, is political will. We, we banner about this all the time. Political will is created by us. And the great thing about the, probably the one silver lining in the, in the cloud of Darfur uh, uh, is this extraordinary movement of people, anti-genocide movement across the United States and in some pockets in other countries where people who basically don't know anyone from Darfur, never have been there, and may never ever meet anyone from Darfur in their entire lifetimes are dedicating themselves to go to rallies, to write letters, to get on the internet, to, to, to do all the kinds of things that people do in the context of 21st century viral campaigning and networking and mobilization. And they have put the issue of Darfur on, a, on the radar screen. And we have a vice president and a secretary of state and a, United Nations, and a U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, all of whom who are very, very strong advocates of, of, much, strong, of much more potent action in Darfur. And we have a president who is well-versed in the issues and who's very deferential to this movement and very supportive of the movement. And we have, I think, now to redouble efforts of that movement to try to ensure that with all of the extraordinary panoply of crises that this president faces, uh, that Sudan is not forgotten amongst that list. Can I just compliment yes, a quick, I, and I think you articulate well the 
huge, the enormity of the task in front, and then at the same time how doable it is. I think you'll agree that it's not going to be an overnight project, that this is something that has to be, you know, to, to overcome these barriers has to be a long-term thing. And one thing that we can do to complement that at the same time, and at the risk of sounding like a broken record, is there are Sudanese people, a huge chunk and a crucial chunk of the people that are just as Sudanese as the folks that are suffering within the borders that, um, we that are much more easily accessible, if you will, um, than um, geo-petrol politics and Security Council resolutions and regional diplomacy and th the much lower barriers to entry. And as we're working on those big, big features, it's really important that, you know, that the U.S., which has such a say in these things, can do a whole lot more to push for refugee protection and adequate resources and getting those folks education. Because I guarantee you, no matter what happens, you know, the peace agreements are, if they, if they are signed and everything, the fate of those agreements, if they ever do arrive, rests on, um, rests on the people that are, that's, the, that's a huge step, but that's not in anywhere close to the end. And we need an army of Francos that are there that are able to do that. And, that, and folks like Franco who are in Massachusetts and who are uh, you know, in, in territory that's, much, that's very, very accessible to us, we, that, that's an easy one, comparatively speaking. And something that we don't think about nearly as much. But they are just as Sudanese as anybody else. And they are going to be so integral in rebuilding that country, hopefully in a, in a you know, more progressive and fair and just image. So um, yeah, so that's, that's just one thing to sort of add to the cocktail there that could really be helping for generations to come. And that's really one way to be thinking about this. Um, hello, Blair Glencourse with the Institute for State Effectiveness. Um, we heard a lot about individual suffering, um, and I was wondering if you could just tell us a few of the stories that emerged through your interviews that gave you a sense that there is a better future and really restored your um, faith in humanity. Um, Has your faith been restored? <laughs> um, there are, I, I've had the pleasure to meet some absolutely incredible folks um, while I was uh, traveling around and doing this. Um, doing this work, and some stories, I, I will say that not every story has ended happily. Um, one of the narrators was killed shortly after uh, we sat down and did an interview. Um, the majority of them are still very much just as in limbo as they were um, when I conducted the interviews a year and a half or, or so ago. Um, but there were a couple of awesome stories. I mean, the the one that uh, just to expound a little bit on it, um, this woman, a wheel that uh, I mentioned, um, who was Southern Sudanese uh, as a child escaped, was, uh, was abducted and being put in one of these camps for, to be made into a slave, escaped from that, went up to the capital city of Khartoum where she was basically forced into a marriage she didn't want to be in, um, escaped from that. Um, and is now up in Cairo. And when I met her, it was through actually a lawyer that I knew. Um, she was raped once by Sudanese military officers in Khartoum. Um, and then she, when she got to Cairo um, and was looking for work, she was, she was denied protection by the UNHCR because she didn't have documentation to prove that she was um, truly deserving of protection. They found a lack of credibility in her story because she didn't have documentation to back it up or didn't know specific dates. 
Um, so she was sort of working underground. And in search for work, uh, some men picked her up and offered her a cleaning job and then uh, gang raped her. Um, and she had a child from that. Uh, a couple of years later, still in Cairo, um, she was picked up by police officers for walking alone on the street at night. And they started to gang rape her. And she said, this time, she knew what she was, she knew what she was doing. She said, fool me once, you know. And um, she told them that she was on her period, that she wouldn't be able to have sex with them, which is very taboo. Uh, and, but she could give them oral sex. So she starts giving them oral sex and uh, takes a Kleenex from her bag and swipes the semen and goes to a lawyer and said, these men with this car, this police car with this license plate, raped me. What do we want to do about this? And she's fought, and she's still fighting. And it's the first case, as far as anyone can tell, it's the first case where a judge in Egypt has admitted DNA evidence into a case. Um, the Canadian Embassy has offered her emergency resettlement if she wanted. She could be on a plane to Canada tomorrow, but she's sticking it out in Cairo under threats to her life um, because she wants to she wants to bring these men to justice, and she wants to stand up and finally do this, because no Sudanese refugee has ever done anything like this within the legal system in Cairo. And you can't imagine how stacked everything is against her. And her one of the perpetrators was a son of a very powerful. Uh, the story just, I'm giving you like a slice of what is. Uh, we sat for two days, and like, I think the interview, we sat for like 15 hours and told this interview, and I was sort of catatonic afterwards by just the incredible, that this human being actually exists um, was, was pretty stunning. Um, and, she's still, and she's still trucking along like the best that she can. And there are awesome Egyptian lawyers and um, American and British lawyers that are working on her team and risking their own safety for the sake of her. Um, but she's doing, and she's like, as opposed to a cushy life in Vancouver right now, um, where she is, she is there and she is pushing for this at risk to her own life. So there are incredible stories. And even folks who are still in Cairo, uh, one of the guys in the book named Tariq, who was an um, Arab elite family, um, comes from like a, political, a family in, in the political leadership. He, as a college kid, was joining politically dissenting groups and was tortured and imprisoned by the government. So he, too, I mean, this is, again, going beyond the monolithic good guys, bad guys that we have. Political dissent is not smiled upon in the capital city of Khartoum. And so he had to flee up to Cairo. And he's been there also without real refugee protection for years. Like, he gets sort of a basic guarantee that he won't be deported back to Sudan, and that's it. But he's taken that time, and he's, you know, uh, it was hard to interview him. We had to do it in little hour segments because he's spending his time without much work at all helping other refugees there. He's no, he knows the system. He's been there for five or six years. And if you need a mattress or if you need a fan or if you need milk for your baby, like, he's the guy that knows how to get it, you know? He's like, uh, what was the guy in the Shawshank Redemption that knew how to get everything? Like, he's, the, he's become that... Radar from MASH, just as good, you know? Um, uh, and uh, drinking his purple knee-high, right, wasn't it? And, uh, and, he's, and he's just, he's the guy there, and he's doing so much for all of these people that are still streaming into, and you know, whether it be their Darfurians or Southerners or whoever it is, he's there, and he's one of the first, you know, first ports of call if you need help figuring out what to do in this mad jungle of a city. Um, he's taken it upon himself totally informally 
to just be there for everybody. It's pretty awesome. And folks who have been resettled successfully to the states and are living by the ocean with their families and putting their kids on the school bus in the morning and reading the news about home and hoping families are still safe, but getting their kids educated and teaching them where they came from and hoping that they'll be able to go back someday. So, so they're out there. And they're very close to us. They're probably here. I mean, I'm sure they're here in Washington, DC. And this is something to do also. Talk to them. If we, if we love, like if we care so much about Sudanese, they're not hard to meet them. They're not aliens. They're, you know, aliens among us or whatever you want to say. But they're, they're, they're here. The group you work with. Tell just for a minute about the group you work with in, in, in the Boston area, uh, the social service group. I'm working on Lutheran Social Services for unaccompanied minor refugees. Uh, we are sponsoring the young kid from Africa. Uh, my job is to work with African kids, kids who come to U.S. under age of 18 and they don't have parents. So I work with them to find a school and uh, foster home where they can stay. And I help them until they're 10, 22 years old. When they become independent, they, they move on with their life. I've been doing that now for eight years. Uh, my focus was I was hired uh, to work with the Sudanese boy when they came. Uh, and they work very well uh, in Boston area. We have about 40 of them. Uh, we have some of them who went to the Ivy League school uh, from them. And most of them now they finish four years college, and some of them are doing a master degree. Some of them went back. Some of them are doing exactly what I'm doing. They are building a school or clinics uh, back home. But it is a program. It's not only in Boston. Uh, it's in a different states, and it is very good one for the kids who are under the age of 18. You mentioned in Cairo they don't allow the kids who are minor to come to U.S. For what reason I don't know. Uh, this is because in Cairo. The reason the UNHCR is not giving people the protection, they have to get the permission from the Egyptian government. And I think that is a big problem because the Egyptian government has a close relationship with the Sudanese government. And they don't want anything to make the Sudanese government mad from them, especially given that the Egyptians depend on the Nile River for the water. They want always to have a close relationship with the, the northern Sudan. Uh, always Egypt is working very hard uh, to keep Sudan as a single country just because to keep the water flowing to them. Uh, in November, Mubarak went to, to Yuba. Uh, and if you look back, he is not always going to African country. And I was surprised to see him coming to Yuba. And the idea was that to, uh, to encourage the Southern Sudanese so that they can vote for a referendum for the unity of the Sudan. Yes, yes, frozen of Egypt. And the idea is to take the water to the Egypt. I know, I, I, I was in Egypt, and I know we used to live in in one single bedroom, like 15 to 12 people, and we were not allowed to work. We stay there and all night, and then during sometimes we go to the churches to give us foods and some uh, clothing, it's just items that we can use. And they said, oh, you are not a refugee if you are a Sudanese. You are not allowed even to go and, and do the interview with the UNHCR. But the UNHCR has to get the permission from the Egyptian government in order to do the interview and, and give you the protection. And that is very complicated. Hi, my name is Kunda. Um, I don't have any affiliation. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role of the African Union and the United Nations troops in Darfur. Um, talking here, it might sound as though um, Nothing much has been achieved, but we know there are thousands of troops on the ground, but they have um, 
haven't been successful to say the least in maintaining the peace. So I was hoping um, one of you could talk a little bit about that. Thank you. Well, just real briefly, um, I think we, we all know about the, uh, about the trials and tribulations of this force in the UN and AU force in, in Darfur. Uh, first and foremost, there's a structural problem here, is they have been sent to, as peacekeepers to a place that has no peace agreement. Uh, so their mandate and their uh, objective uh, is, is problematic from the start. And uh, we, we know even more famously that the troops that are there, and many of them are courageous, and many of them have done a lot of things on the ground, often outside of their mandate to protect civilians, are woefully, woefully under-equipped for the job at hand. And so the deal that was sort of struck, if many of you don't realize this, from uh, two or three administrations ago, going back to President Bush Sr., uh, uh, and Mitterrand and um, and Tony Blair and their desire to uh, basically provide the training and equipment for African forces if the African if key African countries would commit to uh, sending their troops in harm's way into these kinds of situations like in Darfur. So frankly speaking, over this last decade, the African troops the African governments have kept their word. They have sent their troops into these places like Eastern Congo, Somalia, Darfur, and the broader international community led by the French and the British and the Americans haven't lived up to our part of the deal, which is to provide the kind of support and equipment necessary to make their uh, jobs have, their, 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 them have at least potential for some success, particularly with respect to civilian protection. So, I think the, 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 the uh, takeaway is that uh, first and foremost, we need to work assiduously for a peace agreement uh, in Darfur that will allow these uh, thousands of peacekeeping troops to be able to do the job that they were sent to do. And then we have to make sure that they have the kind of equipment, uh, particularly aerial uh, mobility uh, and intelligence gathering that will allow them to be successful. Does anyone want to add anything on this? Okay. Uh, my name is Vidya Mahadevan. I'm with International Medical Corps here in DC. Um, you've all mentioned that there are a number of visible changes happening in the south. And for example, in northern Bargazal, the road f north from a wheel through Mawakon, it's it provides access to the north and um, to the south by, um, from Khartoum. And there are many northerners moving into the south and it's very visible in a wheel and i wanted to know if you think that these are sincere efforts at reconciliation or um, integrating the population or if it's just a token effort to kind of pacify the southerners no you go you go well the way i see it i don't see any changes that that is going to bring uh, a good relationship between uh, the Dinka in northern Barakazal and uh, the north. Um, that road is, is good there because uh, it's allowing the good to come from the north uh, to, to Awil and then they go to Wau and then they go to some part of southern Sudan. 
last year they used that road, they block it uh, intentionally to punish people in, in, in northern Barakazal for two months and the people were running out with, uh, uh, with everything. Uh, people have a different view about that, the way they look to it. Uh, people think that if something happened, it will be easy for the Sudanese government to transfer the soldiers and come and, and take Awil. Because if there is the war between the South and North, I think Awil would be the first place they are going uh, to take. So there are a lot of people who are not happy about the road. People were thinking that instead of building the roads between uh, South and North, they should build the road between southern Kampala, Uganda, or, or Kenya. That was a lot of people in southern Sudan would look to that. But when the peace was signed, uh, people, including the United States and other African Union, people were in it to give time for southern Sudanese so that they can accept to be with the north after six years. People are looking for the unity. And one of the things they say is that let them interact by having the transport between the north and the south so that they can accept each other because there was no road before that and we were really cut off uh, to the north. But I have to tell you, nothing is going to change that road. It's, it can cause a lot of problems. Uh, they look to it. People in southern Sudan say that it can allow it, uh, the Khartoum government to transport the soldiers. But last year, when it was blocked and the Masiria and Rezekad were coming, uh, or their horses, it was easy for the SPLM, SPLA army also to transport the soldiers and block them away before uh, they get to our will. So I don't think there is anything is going to change about that road. Do you have any insight there? Because that came up when we were watching the road being built, whether or not this was just a ploy to be able to move uh, troops and arms quicker down to, uh, do you have any uh, I, I insight? I think that, that is definitely what, what yeah. the impetus it was a government of Sudan initiative, wasn't it? It wasn't a dual thing. It was them building it with... They don't know who, who found that road. Nobody knows. There were Scandinavian engineers involved. I thought it was like a Swedish company that had been contracted. Contracted, yeah, yeah. contracted by the government. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean it's, it's, it's a function of government to, to build roads. It's just yeah. how they build them can be highly strategic and look so innocent to promote development, but actually are very much integrated into the war strategy, even during a time of peace. One more. Uh oh, better be a doozy. <laughs> no pressure. My name is Amy Kay. Thank you for letting me in um, <laughs> at the last minute. Um, I work for the Center for Development and Population Activities, um, but before that, I had worked with the UN Disarmament Demobilization Reintegration Program, Southern Sudan AIDS Council in Juba. Um, and had worked on HIV, which I would remind you, Gurang said, upon the signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement would be the next war. And so thinking about this peace surge, um, I appreciate that you're looking at it from a diplomatic standpoint, from a policy standpoint. But I know, um, and I so appreciate the complexity with which you address your narratives and um, these oral histories, because I think if we look at the majority of Sudanese, whether they're northerners or southerners, east or west, I would argue that the majority do want peace. Um, and I can say it within my own limited experience, um, and I could say it could even start with a point of frustration. In here I am trying to work on HIV, and in Khartoum I'm asked for computer lessons, and in Roomba I'm asked for a plow, um, and in Izo they want laptops, and in Yambio they want mosquito nets, and there's so much uh, snake bite medicine, there's so much want for um, there's so much pragmatism surrounding potential productivity. 
Um, and I do appreciate the efforts that you're making related to education and health and so forth. But I think if we can remember that that majority of Sudanese, at least I think the ones that I met, and I would argue for this, do want peace, that that surge, that peace surge, needs to keep that in mind um, and how to mobilize that uh, within society as well. Have one last question. That was a good comment. I know, but no, but I can fine. say one thing. Oh, about, good. Okay, I can great, say one you. thing about this. Uh, it's easy here for American people to speak and the government listen to them, even though you find that majority of the people want peace. But people who are ruling, they may not want peace. And these are the people who can make a decision and do anything they want. So the all war can be waged by someone in the power, and majority of the people don't want it. Yeah, that is a problem. What can you do? Uh, that is a problem. Uh, it's, it's a big problem in, in Africa. Can I put it? Okay, okay. Well, anyway. <laughs> um, and I was wondering, um, in uh, bringing empowerment or bringing the peace, uh, is there a special role that... Uh, or what might be the special role that literacy plays? And is there a particular population to which l literacy is, is a more important part of the equation? It's important. <laughs> it's really, really important. Uh, and this is like on the very basic level of preconditions for organ and the, I, I can totally relate to your laptop stories and your you know how, how do you how do you start making demands if you have to type them up and you don't know how to use Microsoft Word like this is a problem but like how do you know how to organize demands and figure that stuff out if you're not if if you're not able to articulate them and to share those ideas amongst people um, just the the very basics of organizing and especially some sort of civil society. We're not talking about there's, there's, there's got to be a level, and this I think is noticeably absent, especially in North Sudan, which is going to be integral to anything, is there's a very noticeable gap between the elites who are running the show kind of in the shadows, and nobody really, you know, nobody's ever really met one of them around, um, but they're out there. And then there's this very, you know, this population that has been deliberately uneducated for a couple of generations now, in a country that used to be one of the centers of higher learning in Africa, um, you know the, the level of education, literacy, and that kind of level beyond that of being able to analyze and to assert and to argue and, and things like that, that's just going to be crucial to creating that mid-level civil society, which goes back to, to what you were talking about, about organizing advocacy groups amongst the Sudanese themselves of when you're rebuilding this country, there are going to be Sudanese NGOs that are going to have to be involved. And if they're taking hundreds of millions of dollars from Swedish you know, donors and giving them to Swedish contractors, but in the middle, they are throwing it in a vault and not, which is literally what's going on. I mean, I've worked in these organizations. Like they, they have a big safe in the back with an insane amount of money, and they don't really know how to keep track of it. Because even the accountant doesn't really know how to use Microsoft Excel, let alone like his books that are in front of him. And those are the sorts. Of, those things are super, super crucial to be able to to look forward. Not only to to bring those demands that are organized and assert them at the table, sitting across from elites, you know, be able to hold their own amongst that. But on the community level, 
to be able to advocate and say, our neighborhood here, like our block in Khartoum or in a town in Kordofan or wherever it is, our block needs this many mosquito nets. And this is why, and this is what we're going to do with them. And this is the, this is the list of, you know, exactly like that. It's, there's nowhere that it's not relevant, I would say. When Valentino and I went back to, in 2003, we got off the plane at uh, Lokochogio and we were making this one-hour drive to Kakuma, the refugee camp, and one of the guys that got in the car with us was named Victor Deng, and he knew Valentino from the camps growing up. And he was just sort of hitching a ride with us and going back to live there. And then when we went back again in 2006, Victor, who had grown up in, at Kakuma and had regular schooling there, and it was a pretty good school system considering, and there wasn't this consistent day-to-day -day school system going on in, in southern Sudan during the war. It all, it's all ceased for more or less 20 years. But Victor was able to you know, get, an, a, get a piecemeal education, just as all these guys did. Um, and Valentino got, when we went back in uh, 2007, Victor was the acting governor of the Awil uh, <laughs> government. And we went in there, and there, he's got this office about this big with a table almost as long. And he sits at the end of the table. And, and, you know, he's got a line of 100 people there in the morning, you know, ask, asking his advice about how to, how to do things. And he's brilliant. And I just hope he keeps moving up the government because he's incredibly good at what he does. But it just goes to show, I mean, on a very side note, Valentino's a big advocate of, you know, of supporting educational initi initiatives for those in the camps, whether it's now in Chad or, or elsewhere, because, you know, here he, he left uh, and was able to go to college here, speak six languages, you know, and... Uh, so and and here and and Franco can speak even better to this, but there's an incredible full you know uh, press everywhere about school being and literacy and uh, and the building and cultivating of schools being the way forward. So um, uh, if you build a school, it's full, uh, over full with by the time you you put the roof on, and that's what's happening with the school that Valentino's building, and it's just a matter of staffing it. Maintaining that staff, being able to sort of uh, bring everybody up to speed, get enough secondary school teachers and, and, and supplies, and that'll take a lot of money, and it's not quite there, and the infrastructure's not quite there. So keep your ears open for new NGOs that have been started by the so-called Lost Boys and uh, who are building schools. You can fund them privately and, uh, because they're going to need all the money, and, uh, and it's not necessarily going to come from the government of southern Sudan in any sort of easy and effective way. But you should... Uh, yeah, I should say something. Especially with my life, um, I lost my brother, Garan. He's my family. That is the only one killed uh, among us because we had education because my father was able to send us to school and we managed just to save ourselves. Um, looking back to southern Sudan, when the first war started, we have one high school, Rumbeka High School. And when the war started, it was a student in Rumbeka High School who joined the movement to fight for. Uh, the freedom of the southern Sudan. And we were fighting actually for separation of the northern south. For 17 years, we signed the peace, and we were cheated because most of them were students. But look, in 1983, when the war started, it was led by John Garan, who has a PhD in Iowa. He stayed here in the US, and he went back with a good idea. He was able to organize people and fight effectively. And then when the peace was signed, he came up with the good thing. The government in northern Sudan was playing this part of role to keep the people from the south with no education. And that is the way they were managed to control the country. If you give the chance to the kids, and this is always the way I talk to it, 
uh, education is not just the way of uh, reading and writing, it's a way of solving the problem. If all these young kids in Southern Sudan have education, they will be able to solve that problem. They can speak up and this, everybody can listen to them. People with no education, they cannot talk to know their rights. It is very, very important, especially nowadays with all these things going on, the AIDS. You cannot train someone who is not educated to know how to protect themselves. So education is the center of everything in Southern Sudan. If we want to do investment in Southern Sudan, we should focus on education. And everything will just come apart from that by itself. And we hear a lot about, um, you know, the, the, the idea in, in so many places that perception is, is as important as reality. And the reality is, as these guys are saying, that, that education is a foundation for uh, development and peace. But the perception of that is so palpable in southern Sudan, in, in Darfur. The kid, every single young person you meet, desperately wants to go to school, desperately wants a better education uh, because it has become, education has become synonymous with hope. And hope, rather than being dis extinguished by uh, generations of warfare, is actually as strong as it ever was. <laughs> and everywhere you go, uh, the, the, the singular demand that you get from not only young people, but then parents of the kids. Uh, uh, is, is, can you uh, support uh, education? Can you help with the schools? So it is, it's an extraordinary thing, and Dave was talking about it earlier, you know, to see this utter phenomenon of lost boys and, and girls and Sudanese refugees in the diaspora who, who, as soon as they have a dime, you know, take eight cents, and try to figure out how they can put it back into their home community. And often it's in the, in, in the form of the symbol of hope, is school. And uh, uh, that, that development train, that, is, uh, that underground train that is occurring uh, of Sudanese uh, young people, young adults all over the world, you know, instead of building up their 401ks, taking it and investing it in the development of their of their uh, places of origin is, is it utterly uh, 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 spellbinding, uh, inspirational uh, uh, thing. And, and I think we can learn a lot from that here uh, in terms of, of, uh, of commitment to, to family and community and generosity and, and all of those great values that one feels the second that you get off a little bush airplane and go into, into southern Sudan or into Darfur. So I guess we're done. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And thank you, panelists, for being. Oh, wait, we're not done. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I, I want to, on behalf of all of us, thank you for all that you've done. I think Prendergast, everybody knows him to be a hero of, uh, we've looked up to for a while. And uh, when I started you know, working with Valentino and writing that book, you, were the, you and Gail Smith here at Center for American Progress were the, were the first two people I started talking to. So, I just want to thank you for all your continued work, for having us tonight, for the Center for American Progress, for having us for the Enough Project. And, uh, and, I, and my last thing is, even if you think you know, and so many of you guys have expertise in these issues, um, this book is uh, phenomenal. It'll awaken you. It'll uh, tell you things that you never knew. Uh, and, and, it, and, and it is a really um, gripping book. It's not dry. It's not, you know, we tried to make it readable to any, uh, any interest level. And, uh, and even if you thought you knew it all, you'll learn a lot of new things. And they're going to be back there in the back signing. So please hang around, grab one, and, and give these guys a chance to, to talk to you and sign it. Thank you so much, fellas. All right.